Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together again when we can look at the book of 2 Corinthians and we're thankful for what we read there and how you have this, you have determined that this should be part of your scripture and your word to us so that we can be uh, understanding who you are and what you're doing in the world and what you're doing in our lives and what you have to teach us through the life of the apostle and this letter to the church. And we pray that we'll take it seriously and that we'll be able through the work of the spirit to uh, have our minds and hearts open to the truth and to apply it. Thank you for the good news about Liz and thank you for Lori and how you have uh, helped them through this and you've healed them through these experiences. Pray for Hugh that you'll continue to help him and give him strength and uh, give healing to him. Pray for my sister that, that this might, this uh, possible colon cancer can be used spiritually to influence her in the right direction. Bless our time tonight in this class, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So uh, we'll look first of all at our quiz over what we had last week. The glory of the old covenant was more than equal to the new covenant. Glory of the old covenant was more than equal to the new covenant. No, of course, that was the whole point of Paul's point was the greater glory of the new covenant uh, when he starts off in chapter three. And he tries to explain that by using the example of Moses and going up on Mount Sinai or actually going in to talk to the Lord, going into the tent of meeting, really, uh, to the tabernacle and speaking to the Lord in the tent there. And then um, coming out and his face shining, using it as an illustration of the glory or the greatness of the new covenant versus the old covenant. Number two, Moses, uh, Paul says Moses covered his face after speaking with the Israelites so they would not be afraid of him. <clears throat> of course, that's false. Paul says the reason he covered his face after he spoke to them was so they would not see that the glory was fading. That is, he went in and spoke to the Lord, and his face would be enlightened and, 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 and radiant, and, and he would come out and speak to them. But then he'd cover his face until he went back in and spoke to the Lord. And <clears throat> so um, he sees this as an illustration of the fading glory of the old covenant. But the Mosaic covenant was destined to fail from the beginning because it did not, the covenant itself, not God and his program, but the covenant as instituted did not actually provide for, it didn't uh, provide a regeneration as a requirement. That is, just because you're in the old covenant uh, doesn't mean that you're regenerate and you'll go to heaven. <clears throat> that's, that's the advantage of the new covenant. The new covenant, those of us in the new covenant, regeneration is at the essence of it. God writes his law <clears throat> on our hearts, as he says. Three, the veil that remains over the hearts of the Israelites is from their depravity. And so he says, you know, that even to this day, uh, the, the, their, their hearts are darkened. And so he uses that veil that Moses had on his face. He 
uh, kind of illustrates that with there is a veil over the face of over the hearts of the Israelites, and uh, <clears throat> that is really their depravity, their sinfulness, and that's true of all unsaved people. They have sort of a veil. They have a problem. Sin, the sin nature or depravity, as theologians call it, that keeps us from understanding God, seeking God. We need uh, to have our hearts circumcised, as the Old Testament said. We need a new heart. We need to be born again. We need regeneration so that we can understand the things of God, as 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. For the believer can be described as one with an unveiled face. Yes, of course, that's what Moses, that's what Paul is doing. He's using that as an illustration. Number four, when Paul speaks of the God of this age, he's referring to the Antichrist. <clears throat> no, of course, he's referring, you know, as we well known to Satan, although Satan will energize the Antichrist, we know, but the power behind the Antichrist, but directly, Satan is the God of this age. Uh, that is, God gives him control over a large part of what goes on. He is uh, able to uh, seemingly, it looks like, thwart God's program, but ultimately he's not. Uh, God is ultimately uh, allowing Satan certain powers and over the hearts of men and so forth. All right. <clears throat> We're looking at uh, chapter four, the end of chapter four, in our discussion of the character of Paul's ministry. This is all part of Paul's defense uh, <clears throat> because, remember, we said he has had some troubled relations with the Corinthians, and the last source of that difficulty was the visit he made called the severe visit, or the painful visit, I should say. The painful visit is sometimes called <clears throat> that he makes from Ephesus over there, and, and there he faces opposition <laughs> from someone, a person, and maybe others. The Corinthians don't really come to his defense. Paul returns to Ephesus, writes a letter that he sends by Titus that's sometimes called the severe letter. And Paul uh, <clears throat> is waiting eagerly to hear what the Corinthians will do, how they'll respond. Titus, he's waiting for Titus to return. He's telling us about what's happening in his life at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, how he was in Ephesus and he was waiting but he decides not to wait, but to go on north to Troas. He doesn't find Titus there, and he goes to Macedonia, and there he meets Troas, and meets uh, Titus, I'm sorry. He tells us that in chapter 7, as we saw, and he meets Titus, and he gets good news. And so he is <clears throat> writing now to explain issues that are still troubling the Corinthians, or that they have brought up about Paul's ministry, his motivation, why he does what he does, and so forth. And uh, this next section we're looking at, number five here, Paul says that his ministry, the ministry, was performed, however, in bodily weakness. It, it was a, it's a glorious ministry. It's the New Covenant ministry. He carries it out openly. He's not hiding anything. He's not, he's not deceiving anybody. 
It's obvious what he's doing. He's very open with people. <clears throat> no trickery is involved. He's not doing it for money, not trying to manipulate people. But he admits that it's, it, 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 it can look pretty poor <laughs> when you look at Paul himself in bodily weakness. In other words, uh, the Corinthians in the ancient world, uh, they flocked around people who were handsome men, who were very good looking, who could speak well, well dressed, and so forth, as much as people do today. People pay money to go hear speakers who can talk about finance or how to have a better life or how to be healthier. And uh, they're looking for people who who are able to speak well, who look nice, dress smartly, seem to have wealth and so forth. And Paul doesn't present that kind of picture. And so he's talking about the fact that his ministry is performed really, and it looks, it looks pretty poor because in the sense of his own bodily weakness that he has to endure. And he'll talk about this thorn in the flesh later on 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He begins by talking about the present trials of God's messenger, that is Paul's present trials. I say you're having spoken of the glorious light of the gospel in 4, 1 through 6, Paul in 4, 7 through 12 contrasted the gloriousness of the gospel with the weakness of those who proclaim it. Verse 7. But we have this treasure, this glorious truth, the gospel of Christ, in jars of clay to show, in order to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I say here, Paul's reference back in verse 6 to the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ is now called treasure, which is to be found in jars of clay. Uh, it was customary to conceal treasure in clay jars in Paul's day in the ancient world, which had little value or beauty, didn't attract attention to themselves and their precious contents. I mean, even today, people store <laughs> precious things in places where they think people won't look. Uh, they don't just put them in in uh, boxes or something that will draw attention to them or something like that. Uh, I say here, Paul describes those to whom the gospel is entrusted as jars of clay. Now here, uh, jars uh, probably refers not just to our body, which it certainly does, but probably uh, to the whole person since uh, the hardships in the following verses that Paul is going to talk about, since we are jars of clay, he's going to talk about various hardships we endure, and they include things that go beyond the physical. Uh, Paul's imagery here of jars of clay is not meant to uh, disparage human beings. We're in the image of God, but rather it's to contrast the relative insignificance and the unattractiveness of the bearers of light, that's us, with the inestimable worth 
of the, you know, and, and the beauty of the light itself. So in comparison to the gospel, the beauty, the greatness, the light, the glory, we're like jars of clay. Uh, so behind this contrast that Paul is drawing here, he sees a purpose why God is doing this so that people can recognize this all-surpassing power is God's alone. So God, God wants it to be shown and known that the gospel and what it does, it's all of God. It's God's power. It's not us. It's not our abilities that make this happen. We are totally dependent upon God and his working through his word and the spirit. Verse eight, we are hard pressed on every side. Remember, he's talking here about these difficulties, these trials of, uh, that he faces, that, uh, all of, that and, and in a sense, all of us can face, uh, some more than others, but particularly Paul here, we're, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, uh, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. So here we follow this series of four contrasts that illustrate the weakness of Paul in discharging his commission and the power of God in preserving his life and spirit. In verses eight and nine, uh, Paul there presents the first of the so-called tribulation list found in 2 Corinthians. So, you know, if you've read through 2 Corinthians, you know there's these lists that Paul lists the various difficulties he faces. They're often called tribulation list, things that he has to endure. That We'll see that in 6, 11, and 12. Verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For if we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, excuse me, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So these three, uh, these four preceding contrasts in verses eight and nine, you know, hard-pressed but not crushed, perplexed but not dis despair, persecuted, struck down, these uh, contrasts are summarized here in verse 10. We carry around in our body, the death of Jesus. Now, the word translated death here, the death of Jesus, and there's many scriptures that talk about the death of Jesus, is not the normal word that we have in Greek for the death of Christ. It seems to be emphasizing something else. It refers actually to the process of putting to death. So Paul is thinking here about, we carry about the the death or the dying of Jesus. Paul is, by that phrase, summing up this experience that he's talking about of being hard-pressed, of being perplexed, persecuted, struck down during the course of his service for the Lord Jesus Christ. But then on the other hand, he uses this expression, the life of Jesus. We carry about this dying, this death through these difficult experiences. But we also have the life of Jesus, he says, uh, to express the Lord saving him from being crushed. So we are hard-pressed, 
but we're not crushed because we have in us the life of Jesus, the work of the Spirit, of the new life from God, and so forth. This saves Paul from being crushed, from despair, from abandonment, from destruction. The meaning of the phrase, the death or dying of Jesus, is also explained by what follows in verse 11. The dying of Jesus that Paul carried around in his body was nothing other than his being always given over to death for Jesus' sake. Um, we are being given over to death, he says, for Jesus' sake. And he's talking here about the various perilous hazards that he faced every hour. Uh, and he seemed to face death every day. You know, he says uh, um, in 1 Corinthians 14, 30 and 31, uh, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, he says. It's like I'm dying every day. Uh, because I'm having such difficult times and experiences. And it's, you know, it's hard, to, hard for us to imagine anything, what it was like for Paul traveling in the ancient world like he did, where he was subject to you know, all kinds of physical uh, difficulties from the climate, from the terrain, the hardships of traveling, robbers, <laughs> thieves, <laughs> disease. I mean, it, it was a, a very, very difficult kind of life that Paul was living, basically walking from place to place, as far as we can tell. I say here, Paul uses the grammatical sequence here, so that also, in verses 10 and 11, you know, we carry about so that the life, uh, we always given over to death so that his life. He uses that to stress the fact that the death and the life of Jesus were simultaneously evident in his experience. We can relate to that. We enjoy this new life in Christ, but we still face the fact that we're in a mortal body subject to decay and death and all the problems and difficulties that that entails. So it's not a matter of life after death or even life through death, but life in the midst of death. We experience this new life, this spiritual life that uh, keeps us from being depressed and destroyed and despairing. Um, Paul's repeated deliverances from death evidenced the resurrecting power of God. That's what he says. I could see the fact I could I could that was that was a taste of God's resurrecting power. Uh, you know, sometimes the Christian reaction to adversity has tended to be something like, "Well, we just have to grin and bear it," or we have to keep a stiff upper lip. Uh, but Paul's approach is somewhat different. He makes it clear that it's God's power and the life of Jesus that empower and sustain him. He's not looking to himself. He's trusting God. God will sustain him and empower him. Not his own fortitude will be the ultimate answer. Verse 12, so then death is at work in us, me primarily, but Paul and his companions, but life is at work in you, Corinthians. Paul concludes, I say here, verse 12, 
by relating this theme of life and death to his earlier statements in chapter one about vicarious suffering. There he had said, I suffer for Christ, God comforts me. I comfort you during your suffering. So here his thought seems to be, I suffer the exposure to physical death for your sakes. Uh, I'm carrying out this ministry, this difficult ministry, but it's for your sake. You enjoy more of the risen life of Christ as a consequence. So Paul has to suffer and endure this, but he brings the gospel. He brings the good news. He brings the word of God. And therefore, they enjoy more of the truth about Christ, the risen life, the, the Christian life, the sanctified life. The more intensely Paul experienced the trials and sufferings of this apostolic life, he's saying the richer would be the Corinthians' experience of the joys and privileges of the Christian life. I mean, Paul wasn't just staying back in Antioch. He was out there risking his life so the Corinthians could enjoy these privileges and the joys of the Christian life. Uh, through Paul's endurance, uh, the gospel had been brought to the Corinthians at first, and by believing the gospel, they had passed from life to death, of course. And, you know, to see the repentant sinner entering into the newness of life makes every affliction born for Christ and for Christ's sake and his service a thousand times worthwhile. That's what's motivated, you know, when you read these stories of pioneer missionaries. I read them quite often. I get a thing sent to me every day, a church history thing. And you read about these people in the 1700s and the 1800s and early 1900s who went to these, should I say, God-forsaken places. I mean, they went, oh, they just, they went to these places, you know, where it was just so difficult and they suffered disease and heartbreak and children dying and spouses dying. And yet, boy, they just endured all that. They, they had a very, very difficult life. That's kind of far different from, you know, how often gospel ministry and, and successful gospel ministry is portrayed these days. There's, I think there's a lesson there for us. Uh, you know, the Corinthians, like many Christians today, um, believe that sort of adversity was inconsistent with the spirit-filled Christian life, let alone with the gospel ministry. This is one of the problems of our Pentecostal friends. Uh, they, have, uh, they have what is often called, <laughs> technical term, over-realized eschatology. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, of course, we know in the future, eschatology, in, in the future, in the kingdom, things will be glorious and wonderful. No death, no disease, no sin, you know, it'll be great. But that's not today. That's not what we realize today. But sometimes they try to portray that as health and wealth and riches and, you know, you won't have any problems. And the point is, at issue here, is how does God manifest his power? How do we see him really working? Is that the way? And Paul's opponents uh, seem to claim and we get to Paul's opponents in 2 Corinthians quite a bit. If you read 1 Corinthians, the problems there don't seem to come from outside influences particularly, as far as we can tell. But that's not true in 2 Corinthians. There's outside influences. Uh, 
Paul will call them false apostles, and he'll deal with it quite a bit in 2 Corinthians later on, we'll see. But they claim that, you know, you can really tell if God is working if you see signs and wonders and miracles. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, maintained that God's power is able to make itself known most effectively, he says, through hardship and distress. <laughs> now, this is a hard message for us in the 21st century, the 20th century. <laughs> To, to get. I mean, we like to be in control of the circumstances. We like to operate from a position of strength. Um, I mean, have you ever, uh, I don't know if you've ever been involved. I've been involved with a lot of uh, ordination councils where we, where churches call a council and they'll bring in preachers and other people to examine a candidate for ordination. Or if you've ever been involved in calling a pastor to your church, you know, um, you know, sometimes I've heard this, sometimes you'll get this question asked, uh, how has God been at work in your ministry? You know, how has God been at work in your ministry? <laughs> and here's Paul's answer that he says in second Corinthians or first Corinthians, you know, first <laughs> Corinthians four, he says, to this very hour, I go hungry and thirsty. I have nothing but rags to wear. I've been brutally treated by the community in which I've been ministering, and I'm currently homeless for Jesus' sake. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, if this is if this guy came in to be your pastor, would you give him a second chance? <laughs> you know, this this guy's a failure, man. <laughs> and yet, this is exactly Paul's opinion of the kind of resume that authenticates the true gospel ministry. Quite a bit different than what the Corinthians were thinking. So Paul is dealing with uh, his own ministry here, and he's trying to explain that it's carried on in a lot of bodily weakness, a lot of difficulty. And he talks about his present trials now he talks about the importance of faith in all this kind of thing, of trusting God to God's messenger, or a person like Paul and us. Uh, B here. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So Paul's quoting here, you notice the quotation marks, I believe, therefore I have spoken. He's quoting Psalm 116.10. And in this Psalm, the author tells how God gave him courage to speak out despite opposition and how he suffered affliction because of his outspokenness. In a similar vein, Paul is able to speak out regardless of the negative consequences to him. But what motivated Paul, you know, to have the courage to speak as he did? Well, Paul proclaimed, you know, the good news with confidence, with utmost confidence, because 
of this firm conviction he had um, of his personal resurrection and his being presented with all believers before the presence of God or Christ. So Paul can accept ridicule. He can, he can accept personal deprivation. He can accept hostility because he was convinced. Notice he says, we know because we know. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So Christians will be raised with Jesus in the sense that, you know, the resurrected Christ, he's the prototype and ground of the new resurrection. Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ is the first fruits. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, all those in Christ who have made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ first, the first fruits, first one raised with a glorified body. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. When Christ returns, uh, it will receive a glorified body if the rapture should happen uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, then we will receive right then that glorified body. Verse 15, all this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Paul now reminds the Corinthians all the hardships and difficulties he has been describing are endured by the great apostle not to promote his own good, but for their benefit for the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to God for their benefit, and that will result in glory to God. As, grace, as God's grace expands in their own hearts, as they are saved, more and more of them are saved, and they reach ever-increasing numbers of converts themselves, then the volume of thanksgiving to God would increase, and that would you know, ultimately promote the glory of God. Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Though Paul could truthfully say he was not losing heart, nevertheless, he was realistic enough to recognize that his toil and suffering had taken their toil upon him physically. Yet even for this hardship, there was a wonderful compensation. Matching the progressive weakening of his physical powers was the daily renewal of his spiritual powers. His uh, inner person was being renewed uh, day by day. The, the New American Standard you know, NIV translates this, though outwardly, yet inwardly. Um, New American Standard says the inner person, uh, the 2020 version. 
the reference here that Paul is referring to when he says inwardly we being renewed is talking about our regenerated spiritual existence, our new spiritual life, which can grow stronger in spite of physical weakness and should be, you know, as we, you know, as we, uh, as, as we, as physical weakness comes, as we age and get older, um, or as we face uh, disease and other things that make us physically weak. Uh, ultimately, our spiritual existence can grow and become stronger. Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the same expression here, in your inner self, in your inner person your spiritual life. He says, for our light, verse 17, and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So in light of the eternal importance of this spiritual renewal that he has just described, Paul has described in verse 16, Paul can view his troubles as merely light and momentary. Imagine that. You know, in one sense, Paul was certainly a realist who didn't minimize the severity of these troubles. He's talked about them in verses 8 through 12 a lot, <laughs> what he's had to endure. But on the other hand, when you view these things from an eternal perspective, from the perspective of, of what was being achieved, uh, which he calls here an eternal glory, that's what's being achieved. These troubles are truly, as he says, light and momentary. The rewards of heaven far outweigh all these difficulties. Remember Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And of course, Matthew 6.20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 18, so we fix our eyes in light of this. We're wasting away. On light of this, <laughs> in light of the fact that what's really important is this, that we're wasting away physically and we're, we, the fact that we're being renewed spiritually and we're achieving an eternal glory. Therefore, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is eternal. So here, but this eternal glory, this treasure in heaven, is by no means automatic. In order for suffering to lead to glory, one must fix one's attention on what is unseen. The contrast between what is seen and what is unseen is the contrast between what is now seen by mortals, by us as mortals, and what is as yet hidden from mortal gaze. Now, Paul, you know, when you read his epistles, he doesn't repudiate all interest in earthly things. God, you know, he says, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. He's not repudiating all interest. He's not saying go into a monastery or a nunnery. 
But instead, he's affirming that his desires are set on things above. Remember Colossians 3, set your desires, set your affections or hearts on things above, on lasting realities that are yet unseen. There are a lot of things that are unseen, such as our regenerated life, this new life we have, the work of the Spirit in our lives. These can't really be seen. We can see the results of them, but we don't see the process. The growing comprehension of God through communion with Him. You know, the promises of God that He gives us for the present and the promises for the future. All of these things and many more are, are not seen, but they are just as real as visible object of this world and are far more permanent. <laughs> Finally, Paul explains their sense, why we should fix our eyes on what is seen. We should not fix our eyes on what is seen, but what is unseen. Paul knew fully well that the present age is temporary. Remember 1 Corinthians 7, 31, for the world in its present form is passing away. And on the other hand, of course, the age to come is eternal in the sense that it's going to last forever. And so Paul could see that these afflictions are really just temporary, but this reward is eternal. And that's a tough thing. This is very tough. It's hard not to fix our eyes on what is seen, not to you know, spend all our time and attention on what is seen and think about and view as important what is unseen. That's a difficult thing. People have wrestled with that. You know, Christians have wrestled. I, was, I always think of these words of this poem by Wordsworth, kind of a famous poem he wrote. Uh, the world is too much with us. The world is too much with us, late and soon getting and spending. We lay, we laced our powers. We, we, we laced our power, lay waste our powers. And he wrote that at the beginning of the, you know, the first industrial revolution. I mean, we think we have it great now, but he, he was talking about, you know, <laughs> here we have the, you know, the steam engine and we got trains and we got things like that. <laughs> You know, and we have so much more to fix our attention on than than he did, and he yet he saw the problem uh, that that uh, we face here. We have to remind us of the words of the apostle here constantly on this point. Well, we're looking at the character of Paul's ministry and how it's performed in bodily weakness. And this sort of leads you know to one sort of point after the other kind of another digression. Paul is thinking here about uh, the fact that he is dying every day, <laughs> faces death every day. Uh, he is, you know, becoming weaker, not stronger. Um, he's facing these difficulties, these, that, that uh, he's wasting away outwardly and so forth like that. That leads him to think about the Christian's hope after death. The Christian's hope. Okay, you know, we're, we're facing these difficulties, these problems. Paul's facing death. What about death? What happens then? 
And he talks about the prospect of death, first of all, in verses one through five. I say this section is directly related to the latter part of chapter four. There Paul was pointed out that even in the midst of troubles, perplexity and persecution, there was through divine consolation, the hope of glory, ultimate glorification. We would have a resurrected body. Paul now specifies, he goes into some detail here about the sources of God's comfort, of divine comfort that are provided for us who face the possibility of imminent death. Paul's thinking he could die at any time. And he's thinking, okay, what are the sources of comfort? And this is helpful because uh, many of us, and maybe some of us already have, certainly people in our congregation since I've been there have, have had this diagnosis. You know, you may, you may get a diagnosis. Hey, you've got six months and that's it. So we can all, you know, sometimes people die very quickly and suddenly, but sometimes they get this sentence and they, they, it's, it's really imminent. They know it's coming fairly shortly. And Paul is thinking that, that he could die at any moment. And he's thinking about what kind of comfort is there for me in this situation. And he mentions here three that we'll go into some detail here discussing. He mentions, first of all, the certainty of the resurrection body. Now he's already talked about that, but he's going to talk about it a little more here that, okay, my body's going to die uh, physically, but that physical existence is not going to be over because I'm going to have a new physical existence in a glorified body. Another comfort to him is the possession of the spirit. The spirit is with me, and this is kind of a guarantee, a pledge, that ultimately God will transform me. Now, he's alluded to that already before, and we'll talk about that when he talked about the, the down payment, the, the uh, pledge, the deposit, the spirit, the seal, and so forth. And then, uh, thirdly, another thing he talks about here that's very helpful, he says, there is the knowledge that death involves departure to Christ's immediate presence, where we're going to have personal fellowship with him, to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord, he says. There's no intermediate state there. There's no, there's no uh, purgatory. There's no long tunnel where you don't know, you know, you walk down, you don't know where you're at. No, you're immediately with God, and you'll be very pleased and happy about that. So let's look at that. <clears throat> Verse 1, the prospect of death. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by hands. So Paul in this section, as I said, is considering the possibilities of death before the rapture. Now, we would all like to be present at the rapture. We would not experience what Paul is talking about here. He would like to be present at the rapture, but that's only going to be for a certain number of of believers, obviously. 
But the Lord will bring us back with him, of course, as we know, 1 Thessalonians 4. I'll say here, Paul's occupation as a leather worker, I, I said, quote, leather worker here, because uh, in Acts 18.3, when Paul comes to Corinth to establish the church, if you remember there, he meets a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who apparently are already believers who've, who've been kicked out of Rome by Claudius's has, Claudius has expelled all the Jews from Rome, and he meets them there, and he lodges with them, and it says they're of the same profession he is, and I think the NIV translates it tent maker. There's a lot of difficulty about this word, what it actually means in Acts 18.3. Uh, you know, it, it probably more likely means some sort of leather worker, which tents were made out of leather, so it may be that Paul involved of making tents or involved in that. It's, it's hard to know There's exactly. But um, the fact that he was probably involved in tents, and we suggested, uh, we suggested at the very beginning that there were the Isthmian games at Corinth, uh, at Isthmia near Corinth, a suburb, and Paul was there during the games, 50 to 52, they were held and he, he was there, that he may have been involved in making tents for those games, very possibly. We're hypothesizing here, but it's possible. So anyway, Paul would be familiar with, you know, tent making, putting up a tent. He may have, in fact, uh, lived in a tent uh, on his tra travels and, you know, putting up a tent, striking a tent, taking down a tent, so forth. So this, uh, this, th this, this would certainly enable him to liken uh, the present body to an earthly tent, which he does. He says, our body's like a tent that might at any moment be dismantled or destroyed. But the point is, this would simply mark the termination of the process of weakness and decay that he's been describing back in 4.16. Uh, this will be the ultimate thing that happens to our bodies is uh, the tent will be taken down. But this possibility didn't frighten the Apostle Paul because he was assured of a permanent heavenly house. That is the resurrection body that God would, would prepare uh, for him. Verse two, meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, this earthly body, and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I see here Paul's groaning or sighing did not stem from a desire to become permanently disembodied but from an intense longing to take up residence in his heavenly dwelling, this resurrected body. We groan because we long for this body. Uh, the passage does not tell us, it doesn't define the precise nature of the sighing or groaning, but the immediate context of Paul's thought elsewhere, other books like Romans 8, Philippians 3, suggest that it was the sense of frustration with the limitations and disabilities of the mortal existence that he's talked about already. The mortal existence is okay, but it has all kinds of frustrations and limitations, which we will not have 
with that resurrected body. What Paul would like to avoid is the state of being naked, verse 3, that is, without a body. In the Greek world, naked was the common way of referring to the soul separated from the body. This is the normal intermediate state for a Christian between death and the resurrection. The words here, clothed with, in verse 2, I'm longing to be clothed with, and verse 4, we want to be clothed with. Uh, these words um, mean to put on over. It's the idea of putting something over. It, it's, uh, it's like one puts on an overcoat. So what Paul is is talking about here is he would like to be alive at the rapture at the time of Christ's return so he can experience that instantaneous change of putting the resurrection body on over on top in a sense of this earthly body and thus avoid this intermediate state of nakedness between the death and rapture. Verse five. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I say here, this very purpose for which God has fashioned the believer is defined by verse 4b as the transformation of the mortal body. Verse 5b indicates now how this preparation took place. God has prepared the Christian believer for the resurrection by giving him or her the spirit as the pledge of it or as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The word deposit is that same word we had back in 2 Corinthians 1, Remember, he set his seal of ownership on us and put the spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We talked about that word, arabon there. It's uh, used as of a, of a, in secular Greek of a, of a kind of a down payment, a deposit. You put escrow down on a house as a deposit that requires further payments. You have a down payment, but then you have to make more payments. You know, it's just a way of guaranteeing that something is going to come. Um, it's, it's interesting that this word in modern Greek is used of an engagement ring. So the Holy Spirit is given to us. Uh, I say here, the Holy Spirit guarantees what is to come in this case, the future resurrection body. The Spirit's present work prefigures and guarantees his future work of transformation and resurrection. Paul says, you remember in Romans 8, 11, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give you to your mortal bodies give life to your mortal bodies, so you'll have a resurrected body, eternal life, because of his spirit who lives in you. And this is that, this is part of that uh, guarantee, part of this guarantee that Paul is talking about here may be a present work of transformation. That is where we're, we're, God is guaranteed to transform us ultimately, but there's this present work that we talked about, remember, and 2 Corinthians 3.18, where we're being transformed presently. Our inner being is being transformed, and ultimately our outward being will be transformed. Well, Paul is talking about what happens after death. He talks about the prospect of death, but he talks about 
his confidence, his confidence. Therefore, verse six, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul had great confidence even in the face of death because he had the assurance that he would acquire his glorified body. Back in verse 1, remember we talked about. But Paul also says, verse 6, that as long as we live in our present earthly bodies, we are absent from the Lord's presence. Uh, as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord physically. We're absent from the Lord's presence, and, in our pre and, and it's our preference to leave our home in this body and take up residence in the presence of the Lord. Now, then he says in verse 7, for we live by faith and not by sight. Now, what's that, what's that verse about? It's designed to create, correct a possible misinterpretation of verse 6. Uh, it sounds like verse 6 is a bad thing. We know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. You could take that in some absolute sense. Well, we're at home in the body. We don't even know the Lord. We're away from the Lord. We, we, you know, we have no contact with the Lord. We're, we're just cut off. Well, verse 7 is designed to correct that. For now, we're living by faith and not by sight. So it's designed to correct verse 6 in an absolute sense that somehow we don't have any fellowship or anything like that with the Lord. Uh, that's not what Paul is saying. We do have fellowship. We do enjoy uh, a relationship with Christ. But it's a life of faith. Every Christian lives by faith. This verse is the most taken out of context verse one of them I ever know of, you know, that we ought to live by faith and not by sight. I mean, I can think of this preacher who cites it every week for we, you know, we live by faith and as though it's a command for us to live by faith and not by sight. Now it's true. <laughs> we should live trusting God and not live by what we just see. But Paul doesn't say you should live by faith and not by sight, but he says we do live by faith here. The meaning is um, we're not away from the Lord. We don't. It's not that we don't have fellowship. Our, our relationship now is one of faith and not one of sight. And it'll be even better when we're actually in the Lord's presence. For one day, verse 8, he says, we'll be at home with the Lord. So being at home with the Lord is a higher form of intimate fellowship with Christ than we now experience here on earth. But we do experience, of course, fellowship with the Lord here on earth. All right, I see that it is 8.03. So why don't we stop there for this evening? And I will stop this uh, sharing here. And thank you for